0: Welcome to We Grow California with your hosts, Darcy Villery
1: and Darcy Burke,
0: a safe place where we discuss water, agriculture, and everything that makes California grow.
1: We have guests from those who just drink water to those that make water policy, all passionate about the water issues that face all Californians today.
0: Join the conversation by liking, subscribing, and visiting our website, WeGrowCalifornia.com. Let's get the conversation started.
1: Welcome in everyone. We're glad you joined us for We Grow California podcast. You know, Darcy, when I first got involved in ag in California, it was very interesting to me that in the media and in the news, always almond growers were the bad guys. They were the water wasters. They did terrible things. They were despicable citizens that really had no value and their, their produce or product, Um, their almonds, really had no benefit to the food chain or protein or anything else. So when I first met some pretty large almond growers and processors in the Central Valley, you know, I was surprised that everything I thought I knew was wrong. And I kept wondering, when are you guys going to tell your story? And so I'm really excited to introduce our guest today, Aubrey Bentoncourt, who's the president and CEO of Almond Alliance of California, because she has done just that. She's brought a voice, she's brought reason, she's brought facts, and she's brought those almond growers to the table, um, not just to benefit themselves, but to solve real problems. Um, The alliance was established in 1980 as a nonprofit leader in policy, regulation, and almond-related advocacy. Um, and then since, Aubrey, since you have taken the reins, you have done some amazing things in short order. So can you tell us a little bit um, about how long you've been at the Alliance and what your top three priorities were as you entered to be their new CEO?
2: Well, first of all, thanks so much for having me, Darcy and Darcy. And I um, uh, appreciate the opportunity to reconnect. I think we met a long time ago and uh, um, I think I one time told you I wanted to take tractors into Disneyland at one point.
1: That's so, correct. I, yeah.
2: <laughs> uh, so I, I think one of the things that uh, I've managed to to do throughout my career and have brought to the almond alliance and to the almond community is an unshackled imagination and um, and the idea that uh, to have no fear in trying something new and in abandoning the familiar, uh, calculated abandonment of the familiar but sometimes i feel like we we get it it's almost like stockholm syndrome we get we get addicted to being the bad guy and just sort of accepting it um instead of embracing it and saying actually you know sticks and stones baby watch me roll so um when i came to the Alm alliance about a year ago um i had uh, finished a uh, quite a few uh, interesting experiences working in water and then working at USDA and the farm service agency as the state director for California. So I had that farm program background, disaster uh, background, and that understanding of on the ground resources that can be, you know, uh, connected to our farmers. And that's actually the first time I was exposed to the almond Alliance. Um, One of the things that I worked on, There was really getting our specialty crops incorporated into FSA programs and modernizing our FSA programs to keep up with the changing commodities of a changing agricultural economy and really trying to get those resources available to our California farmers. And that was the first time I was exposed to the Almond Life. That's who I partnered with to bring almonds into traditional farm programs, which had never been done before. And then from there, I went on to the Department of Interior and was working in the Water and Science Division. So I was back at my roots in water. But intersecting with all aspects of the federal government and looking at it from a holistic policy standpoint, integrating with Army Corps of Engineers, EPA, NOAA Fisheries, uh, Department of Energy, interestingly enough, um, USDA, obviously, and in Interior, and then in the White House, and learning it from a different perspective as well. And again, always trying to bring that perspective of the farmer into those policy discussions. And so returning home to California and coming to the Alliance, um, one of the things that I I did was I realized a couple of things and uh, about almonds and, and one was we should not apologize for who we are and what we do uh, and we should not have to explain ourselves. We're experts. We produce 80% of the world's supply of almonds. If you're producing 80% of the world's supply of wing nuts, no one should be criticizing you. Um, and if they do dismiss it because it's not valid. Yep. Um, one of the, you know, uh, California with its 400 plus commodities, And it's, you know, the largest ag economy in the state, in the United States. The second largest, by the way, is Iowa, and they are half the size of our GDP. And so it's kind of cute. It's charming. I love them. But the reality of it is California ag are the divas of ag. And what I've learned in being involved with almonds is, if that's true, then we're kind of the Beyonce of ag. (laughs) That's awesome, (laughs) Aubrey. Yeah, we're like the next step. And when you look at the history and the culture of almonds in in California, you don't get to be 80% of the world's supply of anything by being a dummy, by being a pillager of resources, by being um, a bad actor with employees, by not embracing technology, and by raping and pillaging the earth. You don't get to be what we are by being a bad guy. You get to be what we are by being the most sophisticated, modern, and a little bit of a risk taker. And that is really what I wanted to bring into the policy space and the politics side of, of the almond community. What someone put it really clearly to me, they said, you know, we've, we've done this backwards. We sold to the world to love us and we forgot to close the policy loop. And so that's a lot of what we're doing is we're showing up and in a place and in a space where we believe that we uh, have, um, you know, it's up to us to define who we are and, and to advocate for what we need. And so when, when we came on board, it was, or when I came on board, it was the beginning of, of, honestly, I think we just finished the first year of what is three to five of the hardest years for almonds, which is hard to say for an industry that's just been so successful. Um, other than being criticized as a bad guy, we've actually been very successful as an industry. And so coming into a year coming off of COVID, it was supply chain and water supply. And and essentially for us, it was, we just boiled it down. We we looked at, I mean, I sat down with the board, I laid out six pages, single space of everything we could be working on. And I said, let's pick three because one of the challenges in agricultural advocacy and all advocacy, but I think especially in ag is we're getting hit from so many sides. We're in defense uh, position a lot. And so we decided to stay focused on that which no one else could do for us and that which we had to lead and have a voice in our own fate. And so the priority became assuming our position, assuming our role. The joke in the office was it was the Lion King plan. It was remember <laughs> who you are, you know, and, and with that, finding what is the most important to us that we could not abdicate to anybody else. And so that was a functioning supply chain and a reliable water supply. And so we went to work on those two things. And now I can't make it rain, but I could start looking for projects and policies that we could tweak that would make a difference for us, that would allow for us to start thinking decadally, that would keep our farmers farming, providing new tools for us in a post-sustainable groundwater management world, yep. in in, um, in a world where we're not going to see above-ground infrastructure very soon. It will happen in our dime and we can talk about that. But I, I do think we will have above-ground infrastructure, but just not tomorrow. So what are the tools we need now? Right. So we focused on groundwater and we focused on creating tools and metrics that allowed us to survive a, a post signal world and allow us to transition into that space. And now on the supply chain side, that was actually the, the, the first one we tackled, which was, you know, there was a lot of pressure being put on from a federal legislative standpoint. But that only goes so far. And that wasn't moving nuts. And we had almost 50% of our annual exports sitting here. Our price was was going down as a result. We lost almost two billion dollars just to almonds as a result of the inability to ship product, and we were facing a cash flow crisis of socioeconomic you know just catastrophe. When you consider that the operating capital for our farmers comes from the sales of the almonds that's then doled out throughout the year in what's called pool payments, and because we could sell the product but couldn't ship it, we never got paid because it was never delivered. Right. So. We had to move products. And so we brought in, uh, you know, we, at that point, the story and the narrative was really about importers. And I loved that, too, right? I love the memes about, you know, where's my package in Amazon and it points to a boat off of Long Beach. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> I thought that was great. But we realized they were missing the other half of the story. And the other half of the story was the American, ex. you know, the, the few things we still make in the United States, like almonds. We were not able to deliver to our customer, and it wasn't just what was happening to us on the ground. We, we translated that message into a national message saying, this is also about America's place in the world. If we are not on the shelf, America is not on the shelf. And if America is not on the shelf, we have lost our position in, in the world. And we decided, listen, we may not have the answers today of what exactly government could do or what exactly anyone could do, but by golly, someone's going to know why we went down. And so we launched a 60-day media blitz to tell our story. Throughout that time, we worked then on, so we we controlled our narrative. And throughout that time, we worked on really focusing what our ask was. And our ask came back to, you know what? We need a meeting with the carriers, and we need to negotiate adequate shipping windows and adequate uh, uh, containers yep. being made available to us. And so that became our ask. And we started pushing that in the media, and we started pushing that in our government relations and in 60 days, as we continue to just focus and hyper focus and push it, push on that. By it all happened in one week. We had a letter from our senior senators to the administration and to the five major carriers saying, "You will meet with California agriculture to discuss a four-day receiving window and adequate uh, equipment." It was it hit that same week the cover of the New York Times, the cover of the San Francisco Chronicle, and an NPR nationwide story. By that Friday, we got a call from the North American vice president of one of the largest carriers in the world saying, get my name out of the paper and get the senators off my back. And I said, then get me a ship with a four day receiving one. I was
1: going to say, get get (laughs) my nuts on the boat. (laughs) And that's what we did. And so
2: we launched what we called the Almond Express. We partnered with uh, Union Pacific, actually, and started looking at how do we just evacuate product? Well, we need to quit shipping out of one place at one time. Up until that point. Uh, we export 70% of all of our crops, and 80% of that went out of Oakland, Oakland. Mm -hmm. getting on a truck to Oakland. Why Oakland became an impossible option for us anymore was because the carriers were making so much money, and there was such a demand for imported products, the empty containers going back was worth almost 30 times what it was normally worth. And so they would come into Los Angeles, and instead of unloading and going to Oakland and picking up our almonds and leaving, they would get into LA, unload, grab empties and go back. And they would just skip Oakland. They just forget it. They forget it. We don't need you. And they were making fast nickels. They were making two trips back and forth in the time. It would have taken them to make one because the whole world was congested. So we leveraged the carriers and said, listen, you can't, you can't just ignore us because we just made your lives miserable. And so now you're going to have to engage with us. And the second thing we did was we started engaging the other ports and we started engaging other modes of transportation and trying to get away from the congestion on the coast to get our product directly into port and on a ship. And so we partnered with rail. We started looking at inland um, uh, uh, port options and we opened up ports uh, for export and options for sailings in Los Angeles, Long Beach, Houston, Savannah, Charleston, Norfolk, and, Nor- um, and Newark. And so now, Almonds, who pred- you know, prior to that was Oakland and yep. only Oakland yep. on a truck, is now multimodal, multi port. And we move all product out of any and every option. We cut out the middleman. We do direct bookings, have established points of communication and contacts at each of the carriers. And it was clunky at first, but we have now more options to move. And the idea was we were going to solve it for ourselves because we're that clever. We don't pick winners and losers. We just put more Legos on the table and let the guys and gals out there who know how to solve problems solve problems for themselves. And then when we when we encountered new crises, we had more options uh, to, to solve problems for ourselves. If it wasn't for the strike at Oakland, we actually would have moved all of our backlog product in three months. We had two of the highest shipping months in the history of almonds ever. And uh, we almost moved all of our carry out by uh, by August 1st. Um, and so I consider that a success. We solved it for ourselves and we took ownership of it and we didn't look to government to solve it. We told them we would give you the solution. You can help us do the right thing. Correct. And, um, and, and that's just been the mentality we've stuck with all the way. So the same thing went for water in the launch of the land flex program, which was simultaneously taking place with the state, which provides new tools for our growers to not only support our rural and disadvantaged communities, with at-risk water systems, but also create the financial and um, financial and regulatory stability we need to figure out how we actually can keep farming through sigma and achieve uh, groundwater sustainability going forward. So we grabbed what was conceived. Was say, as Albert, actually- could you
0: expand on that, especially on specifically on landflex? Because that's the thing I when Darcy mentioned it to me uh, the other day, I hadn't, I personally hadn't heard about it. But that's also because I'm in fireball and I don't have any wells, so. <laughs> and there's and there's so many government programs out there or there's so many programs in general that it's tough to get uh get the word out through all the, the white noise so yeah, if you could expand on that, I'd love to hear more about it
2: yeah, totally um, I feel like I'm talking at you too much, but um
1: <laughs> we
0: you're an advocate that's what advo- you know that's what you, you gotta do. get out there and advocate
1: and, and, we're, right? and we're gonna jump yeah. in, yeah you do jump in because well, my uh,
0: apology for not jumping in harder and faster. I, we'll, we'll get better at this.
2: Oh, you're good. I, it, it's one of those things where I, I, you learn more by listening, but when you're in this job, it's about talking. Mm-hmm. So um, land flex was conceived around the idea of um, we were in the middle of a, an extreme drought cycle. Obviously we've had a lot of rain this year, but you know, one storm system does not make a drought end, especially when you have a system that's depleted and, just incongruent in terms of its management uh, and its size and its scale. But we were looking at how do we keep our farmers farming post-2040, which is when SIGMA, uh, the Sustainable Groundwater Management Act, is supposed to come into play. Public Policy Institute of California estimates that up to 2 million acres could be permanently abandoned and fallowed as a result of SIGMA in order to try to restore the aquifers to a sustainable level. I don't subscribe to the theory that it has to be permanent. As I looked at the solution more and more, I realized, wait a minute, it's about the flexibility the farmer needs. And it's about the idea that I need to rotationally follow. It may be a million and a half acres out of production, but it doesn't have to be all the time or the same million and a half acres. It's about the water and not the land. And that's where we started to really look at how to craft a solution in this space. Simultaneously, we have critically overdrafted basins with extremely at risk communities that need help. And One of the narratives I heard when I came back to California after being in Washington for a few years that was really disturbing to me was this idea that somehow we in farming and agriculture don't live in these communities, that these aren't ours.
1: Yeah. Um, Isn't that amazing? You have seven generations that have lived in the same house, but you don't live in the community. No. And that was
2: to me an insult. Um, How dare you? This is where I work and worship and shop and eat and sit on the school board and and, and, uh, you know, run the rotary crab feed. And, you know, how many farmers do we know that dust off their boots as they walk in to sit on the school board meeting? I mean, it's just, it was an insult to me, but at the same time, I think it was a wake up call that we, and this was something that we brought up at the almond Alliance when I started, we have to take care of our communities. You don't get to step in here and tell us how to do that. You know, because if you do, that means we're falling down on the job. So we have to take care of our community. And that's that's the other aspect that influenced PlanFlex. So again, it was about new tools to help us transition to sustainable groundwater management and truly protecting these communities, which is the heart of SIGMA at its core. That's what it's supposed to be about. So in examining what our options were and looking at different programs that had worked on surface water where... At times, water districts, like an imperial, would pay to keep the water behind the dam. I said, well, wait a minute. Why can't you pay to keep the water underground?
1: You can. And
2: <laughs> work with the farmer to do that. And so we went to work. And in that process, we designed this idea of, again, the flexibility. That's how the name LandFlex came about. And we needed to arm the farmer with that financial certainty and flexibility of land and resource management. And so LandFlex is predicated on, uh, in in critically overdrafted basins, uh, farms that are closest to at-risk water systems are scored highest, and they can voluntarily enroll in a contract with the state through their groundwater sustainability agency to essentially um, sell their sustainable yield for the year at a per acre foot rate, as well as, sell their overdraft credit. So that's what's going to be taken in 2040, but sell that early at another rate, retire that credit off the books and become groundwater sustainable today, according to their GSA. So it only works in basins that have an established sustainable yield. So a GSP that has an established right. pumping a lot. So I'm going
1: to stop you out, for some. just a minute because yes. we have a lot of urban users okay. and sure. that listen in. And so GSP is a Groundwater Sustainability Plan. We've talked about it before, but if you haven't heard our earlier podcasts, um, and we use a lot of acronyms here, so again, if you visit ecwaterpack.com, we have forms. You can either say, hey, I didn't know what that was about, or send an email. Didn't mean to interrupt a train of thought, Aubrey, but, you know, we try to avoid water speak and ag speak, so... We talk all about
0: right water in. and ag but we try to avoid Yeah, the
1: acronyms and
0: yeah. yeah.
2: Oh, I get it. Acronym Soup is the worst. Mm-hmm. So
0: Well uh, I think the thing too, correct me if I'm wrong, Aubrey. Like you I mean, you represent so many growers. Some some districts are, you know, even uh, pretty well settled in what they think their their GSA is, you know, what the what the GSP is gonna be, what the, the plan is. But it's still like I, I farm in Westlands too, and so it's still like, okay, we think this is it we think this is where we're going five years from now, we're going to reevaluate. And it's, it's, uh, it's still, I, I think it's, it's interesting where we're all heading, but it's, yeah, it's one of those things that, uh, once it's established, I think it needs to have a lot of flexibility in there, you know, for growing to do what's best.
2: I mean, if you think about it, where where we approached it from, and we partnered with, I'm, I'm leaving out my greatest partner and ally, which is Western United Dairies. Um, and, uh, um, uh, Anya Radaba, who's their CEO, and and then we went. We approached DWR with this idea, the Department of Water Resources, and um, we wanted it at the Department of Water Resources because this was a water program, not a land program, and so we really wanted to house it there. Very different from multi-benefit land repurposing, which was, you know, I think serves a purpose of finding ground that probably should be returned to Kit Fox territory and and putting that into a, an alternative use. We wanted to focus on how to provide that farmer that transition. We looked at multi-benefit land repurposing and I, I sat down with some of the authors and I said, how are you gonna get the farmer to en- enroll in this? And they were like, well, it has no water. So I said, well, yeah. but, the farmer has, but the farmer has a contract, a land payment, taxes. You know, uh, if you're farming for someone, you've got a, a, a contract you're obligated to grow for them, and you're still going to have, you know, bank payments. How are you going to get the farmer to do this? And that really kind of brought in that market function of this, of, wait a minute, there's there's a partnership to be made here. What I loved about this idea and the courage of almonds and dairy, twofold, were the two largest commodities in the largest agricultural state in the union, and that should mean something. And so for us to lock arms and say, we volunteer to solve the problem, and that's really here. We're, we're kind of grabbing SIGMA, the Sustainable Groundwater Management Act, and saying, we think we can do it. How do we do it? What are the resources we need as landowners to be able to do that? What are the resources we need as farmers to be able to do this? And that really was what we grabbed onto. was, okay, what are the transition costs of my land? What is the financial security I need That's you know, it's not about making me whole, but what are the things that I need from a resource perspective to manage the land in a way that maintains um, uh, air quality mm-hmm. concerns? Yep. It also keeps the land viable for future development, but may give it a break to do additional resource and restorative work on it that we participate in with our Natural Resource Conservation Service and some others. And to really start thinking through this idea of rotational fouling, that the farmer will follow ground in order to create flexibility and allow for their water portfolio to be managed a little more whole. So what I looked at it was, even on my own farm, that I needed to be able to have open ground to give me the optionality to either take my allotment of the amount of water per acre I'm allowed to use there and use that to keep my other crops whole and happy and healthy, or maybe rotate into, uh, you know, maybe I get a shot of surface water and I can do a quick round of tomatoes on it and have that flexibility there or have the flexibility to maybe even sell that water to my neighbor, all of which was already taking place out there in the world. And so we were bringing kind of that meld of regulatory compliance with the goal of protecting and supporting our aquifers for our communities and Giving a path forward for our GSAs, our groundwater sustainability agencies and our farmers to think, oh my gosh, I know how to keep farming and achieve groundwater sustainability. There was this horrible, like I said, this absolute, I think, just depressing and terrifying idea that this water was gonna be taken and I was gonna lose my resource and I have no idea how I'm gonna supposed to keep farming. I don't have a bridge, I don't have something to help me rotate. And the GSAs are left in the position of having to regulate their neighbor in a way that they've never had to do. And how do you get them to stop using their resource? I don't want to tell you to stop Stop using your bathroom. Right. Stop using your house. Yeah. You know, we put a lot of pressure on our local agencies, and they needed the tools. And so that was really what we were after. And we came up with LandFlex. We're so excited. It rolled out yesterday. Um, the... The groundwater sustainability agencies are now able to apply to be grant recipients. It's a pilot program right now, focusing on our critically overdrafted basins. So really focusing on those with the communities that uh, are most at risk and with the farmers that are most at risk. And um, we're excited to get it out, work out some of the kinks, but we think this is foundational that can scale to really help get us into that kind of, it's an amazing idea. We are you know, we're going to help our communities. We're going to, embrace the sustainable goals that we're trying to get so that at one point, to your point, Darcy, if we can hit that sustainability, the idea is we can then actively recharge, start seeing the aquifer get healthy, and then we can reallocate the groundwater. So today I might be only able to pump 1.6 acre-feet per acre, but if we actually get this right in five years, maybe I'm up to 2.6 acre-feet per
0: acre. Yeah, oh yeah. I think just to throw it out there, sorry, just for since Aubrey brought it up, today being the 20th, uh, on the website i'm looking on the was it, uh, the website saying landflex program grant solicitations january 17th to february 3rd it's a tight window so don't forget to apply <laughs> you know yeah, exactly. i missed that on my healthy soils because it was a 30 day window and i'm like, oh wait i kept checking the website and i anyway so yeah don't miss out yeah you so that's for the
2: that's for the agencies Farmers sign up oh. to be a little bit later so once, okay. the, once the GSAs have been awarded the grant, then those GSAs, the farmers inside of those GSAs, will be eligible to apply. So this is the pilot. It's staying tight. It's focused on our critically overdrafted basins.
0: Okay. Well, then this is perfect because a lot of agency people listen to this. Good. So agency, GSA people... I know, now I have people have to text message about this. So,
1: <laughs> yeah. You know, Aubrey, in Southern California, fallowing has been part of our water portfolio for over 20 years with Metropolitan Water District. And for us, um, beneficiary pays, meaning that the cost that goes to the ag community to fallow their water, so follow the land to get the water, uh, my ratepayers pay for. And I'm glad to see that the state was smart enough to invest some grant money, some seed money to start out. And so I'm I'm curious to see, first of all, how successful it is and two, what the outcome is. So maybe you'll come back and join us another time and kind of give us an update on that and maybe some other things that you're working on, if that seems agreeable to you. We'd love to have you back.
2: Absolutely. Look, it's about farmers being part of the solution and having those measurable results that we can all say, for this amount, we know how much water was left in the ground to support those communities and protect the watershed. I do not believe economic and environmental Success is mutually exclusive, and landflex is an opportunity to show it. That's, that's
1: not the case. Great. So I just want to remind our listeners, we've been talking today with Aubrey Betancourt, President and CEO of Almond Alliance of California. To learn more about the Alliance and Aubrey and her team and this great organization, visit almondalliance.org. Thank you so much, Aubrey.
2: Thank you.
1: Bye.
0: You've been listening to a We Grow California podcast. If you have a question you'd like us to answer or would be interested in being a guest, please check out our website, wegrowcalifornia.com. Sound and audio engineering provided by postandjam.com.